So I've had the privilege, as I'm sure some of you have, of doing some international travel in my lifetime. And two of my favorite places that I've been able to go to are first, Ghana, West Africa, and second, Australia. And um, when I go to places like this, some of you are, are like this and some of you uh, can't stand people like this, but I like to, to strike up conversations with locals. Just anybody like that? Yeah, and then some of you are like, don't talk to me, you're a stranger, right? Well, I, I like to, to talk to people because I'm not from the area and I can read a book or a website, but I want to learn sort of what's going on and, and learn from those who are, are on the ground, so to speak. And as you can imagine, when you're a foreigner visiting another country and you start striking up these conversations, you kind of, you let on pretty quickly that you're an outsider, right? Uh, maybe it's the color of your skin. Maybe it's the accent. Maybe you just have like a, a, maybe you're wearing a fanny pack and so you just look like a tourist, right? But you sort of reveal that you're, you're not from around here. And those conversations usually have two very important questions as you're talking with somebody in another country. And, and the first is, where are you from? And the second one is, what are you here for? So, so to give you an example, uh, it, on my trips to Australia, when asked, okay, hey, where are you from? I would respond with, well, I'm from a, a western part of the United States, a place called California. That's where I lived at the time. Okay, uh, what are you here for? That's the second question. Well, I'm, I'm here to visit my grandfather and my aunt and my uncle for Christmas. Or think about my, my trips to, to Ghana, West Africa. Where are you from? Well, I'm, the last time I went to Ghana, I was living here. I'm from a, a, a place called Massachusetts. It's in the northeastern part of the United States. It's very, very, very cold. Sometimes it snows 16 inches in a nine-hour period. Okay, that's where you're from. What, what are you here for? Well, this trip, I've come here to train pastors in the Inquanta region for gospel ministry. Right? See, the first question is a question of origin. Where are you from? The second question is one of purpose. What are you here for? And the reason those are usually the first two questions that come up is because they really help us understand and get to know who a person is. And if you've realized, that's what we've been doing the last three weeks in, the, in parts one through three of our Advent series. We've really been focusing on that first question, right? Jesus has come, and we're asking Jesus, who are you? Where are you from? Where have you come from? And so as we've walked through this series, we saw in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the eternal and supreme Son of God. He has no beginning and no end. In that sense, He has no origin he didn't begin at Christmas. He's the eternal Son of God. Then two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 1. Jesus, where are you from? Where's your origin? Well, Jesus is the son of Joseph. We saw that in, in the, the lineage in, in Matthew chapter 1. He was adopted into the family of Joseph and thus from the royal line of David, thus the promised Messiah. And then lastly, last week when Dave Comeout, church planner, was here, Preaching, we saw that Jesus is the son of Mary, who was, Mary was favored by God, and she miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and birthed the God-man, Jesus Christ. All of those are question number one. Jesus, where are you from? What's your origin? And now, in our last Sunday in Advent, we're shifting to that second question. 
Jesus, we know you're the son of God. We saw it in Hebrews 1. We know that you're the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. We saw it in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1. But now we're asking, what or who rather are you here for? We're shifting from the origin question to the purpose question. What's the purpose in your coming, Jesus? That's what we're asking and that's what Luke chapter 2 answers for us this morning. And as we explore this passage, we see that Jesus didn't come on a vacation. He didn't didn't come to us like I went to Australia. He came on a mission and He came for a people. The Son of God came for you and me. So Advent is not merely this theoretical idea. Christmas is not just a season. We are celebrating, remembering, studying a real-time encounter with the living Son of God. And probably the one verse in all of, of the New Testament that sums this up well is what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world, that's Christmas, that's Advent, He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And Paul is not saying, listen, I'm a worse sinner than all of you. Paul is saying, I know myself more than anybody else, and I know that I am the chief of sinners. And we are to likewise think the same. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom each of us are foremost. And so as we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, these very familiar verses, maybe you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special where Linus recites these verses from memory and drops the blanket, his security, because his fear is gone. Love that. But we can sum up these verses in one sentence. It's this. Jesus came to glorify God by bringing peace to the lowly of all nations. Jesus came to glorify God by bringing peace to the lowly of all nations. And as we walk through these these few verses this morning, we're going to observe three things. First, that Jesus came for the lowly, verses 8 and 9. Then we're going to see that Jesus came for the nations, verses 10 and 12. And then third and finally, we're going to see that Jesus came for the glory of God. And as we wrap all of that up, we see that it is profoundly good news for lowly sinners and sufferers like you and I. And so let's jump right in. First, what do we see here? We see that Jesus came for the lowly. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, And in the same region, region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Let's stop for a moment and think about the last few weeks. Have have you noticed how prominent angels are in the Advent story? We've we've seen an angel appear to to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. Even in Hebrews 1, which is not necessarily a a Christmas narrative, tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels. We saw an angel appear to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1. Last week, we saw the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And here, after, verse 7 was the birth of Jesus, right after we see another angel appear to announce the birth of Christ that just took place. 
Now, we, we don't know exactly, we don't have a lot of information about angels from the Bible. Maybe you think of like your storybook Bibles for kids or, you know, a Christmas card or something like that. But we do get a, a bit of a glimpse from other passages of Scripture what these beings were like. And they are glorious creatures. Take, for example, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is given this vision of the Lord, and he sees these angels, these seraphim, and here's his description. He says these angels had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they had a song, and they declared, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want you to think about that for, for a moment. Six-winged creatures flying around yelling stuff, right? That's the picture. It's not the, you know, the naked baby playing the harp on the Hallmark card, right? So, so these are glorious creatures, and it, it, it makes sense to us then that we would see the natural response is fear. We saw it with Joseph, we saw it with Mary, and we see it here from the shepherds. They're filled with great fear, the appearance of these glorious messengers would strike fear into people. Maybe there was a sense of, are they coming to judge? The angels alleviate that concern in a moment. But the, the point is this. A glorious announcement required these glorious beings. This is something very significant. You might say, why all these angels? This isn't something that just happened every day. Read the Bible. This isn't, this isn't common. But this is a significant event, and a glorious message is accompanied by glorious messengers. So this angel appears, one, so far in verses 8 and 9. But notice how the, the glory of the angels is contrasted with the not-so-glorious recipients of their message. We, we've seen an angel appear to a Jewish carpenter, Joseph, to a a bride-to-be, Mary, a, a humble priest, Zechariah, and now, arguably, the lowest of the low. In fact, the only thing considered lower socially than shepherds at this time were lepers. Yet this is who God chooses to announce the birth of the Savior. Lowly shepherds. The first announcement of Christ's birth was not to to the Jewish king Herod. It wasn't to the wise men from the east who come a couple years later. It wasn't to Caesar, the Roman emperor. It was lowly shepherds. They were the ones who were the first to hear about the birth of Christ. And this was considered a, a dirty job for poor, uneducated people. They were seen as people you couldn't trust in fact, the, the Mishnah tells us that because they were known for their lying and thieving, stealing other people's sheep, that their testimony would not count as reliable in a court of law. So then why would God choose this kind of people for such a glorious announcement? I, I, I think it's clear as we read the gospel in its entirety. God is communicating to the shepherds and he's communicating to us and all who would read of the story something that's essential to the gospel, something that's essential to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's this. God is telling us that Christ came for the lowly. 
Christ came for the rejects. Christ came for the downcast. So their social position of these shepherds is meant to be a picture of the humble, lowly heart that clings to Christ. James 2, verse 5, puts it this way. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He's promised to those who love Him? So place yourself in the, in the, the shoes, the, the sandals, if you will, of the shepherds, right? You hear this announcement, and then you go and see baby Jesus as they do in the next passage. And you don't find him in a palace being catered to by servants. Instead, you find him in a room for animals and all the dirtiness and stinkiness that that entails. And these were Jewish shepherds. They knew their Bibles. They knew the promise of the Messiah. He's not in a a comfortable crib, but instead he's laid down in a stinking feeding trough. And so you think, I too know what it's like to bring a child into the world empty-handed. I too know what it's like to be poor. And here is the king, the Messiah, the promised one, and he is stooped to my level to my position of lowliness, to identify with and to save me. Oh, what a Savior. That's the message that's being communicated here. Those whom the world deemed insignificant were the first recipients of the greatest news in the universe. And friends, you're not a shepherd, right? We don't don't understand the, uh, the career of shepherding, but likewise, you have moments where you feel extremely insignificant. You feel outcast. We live in a world where we are, where so many of us are searching and grasping at significance. We want to feel like we matter. We're trying to make a name for ourselves or, or be noticed. And this announcement, what God is saying is, hey, to all you lowly, down and out, downcast, rejected, discouraged people, I see you. I've sent my son for you. Not because of anything you've done, not because of your status in the world, but because I am for the lowly. Christ came for the lowly. And we we know this not just from this passage, right? We, We see this all throughout the life of Christ. We see it in his example. Not only was he born in lowliness, he lived in lowliness and he died in lowliness and this wasn't just a physical geographical thing this was this was the way he interacted with others not self-exaltation but in humility in fact one of the the clearest pictures of the lowliness of Christ is in Matthew chapter 11 this is the one place in the bible where Jesus tells us what his heart is like so if you're going to say what is Jesus like this is where he tells us And listen to what he says. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke 
upon you and learn from me. For, here's his heart, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, we tend to think, this is the default of our hearts, we tend to think, I can't come to Jesus right now because I sinned too much yesterday. I can't come to Jesus right now because I'm too stressed. My heart is not in the right place. Or I don't want to burden God with my problems. And do you realize what you're saying there is, I can't come to Jesus right now because I'm too lowly. See, the the default mode of our heart is, what I need to do is I need to lift myself up from lowliness, and then I can approach God. Friend, that is a worldly, anti-gospel, anti-Christian way of thinking. And all it does, and you know this, all it does is add weariness to weariness and burden to burden. If you are waiting until you have it all together to pour out your heart to Christ in prayer or to come to him in repentance, I've got news for you. You will be waiting forever. Jesus says, no, the whole reason I came is to meet you in your lowliness. I came so that you can burden me with your problems and your sins, and in exchange, I give you my burden, which is light and easy. Dane Ortland has written a wonderful book. It came out this year. Maybe you're a reader. I'm getting to the end of my reading list this year, and I've been thinking, what's the best book I've read this year? This is it by a long shot. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. We have a few copies here this morning. It's a wonderful book that really dives into the depths of Matthew eleven twenty eight in Christ's heart for the lowly because he is lowly in, in heart. A lot of rich stuff from old dead Puritans. It'll encourage your soul. Uh, you can see me afterwards and we'll give you a, a copy of this. But you know what my favorite line in the book is? It's this simple line. He says, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Step one, go to Jesus. Step two, see step one. I love that. I can remember that, right? The next time someone says, what's the Christian life about? You don't say, oh, it's about being, it's about pulling yourself up from the depths of lowliness and being a good person. I know this is ironic because it says, be great right behind me, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The Christian life is recognize your lowliness, recognize that I came for the lowly and come to me. Christ came for the lowly. I love this new Christmas hymn we've been singing. We sang it this morning already. Oh, come all you unfaithful. When, the first time I saw that, I'm like, is that a typo? Because you know the other song, Oh, come all ye faithful. And that's a wonderful Christmas hymn. But let's be honest. What about the times where you don't feel faithful and joyful and triumphant? Which is often. And this hymn gets at this fact. Christ came for those who are desperate in their lowliness. Oh, come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come know that you're not alone. Oh, come barren and waiting ones. You're weary of praying. Still, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Jesus came for lowly sinners and sufferers like the shepherds, like you and like me, and we must come to Him and experience His gentle and lowly heart. And then second, as we move on, verse 10, we see that Jesus came for the nations. Jesus came for the nations. Verse 10, we read, And the angel said to them, 
Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the angels, the angel, just one right now, the angel tells the shepherds they have no reason to fear because this announcement is not judgment, it's good news. And those who who receive this good news, it will result in great joy. And who is this child that's been born? Well, verse 11 is jam-packed with a theology of who Jesus is. It points to three things. First, we're told that this, this baby who is born is the Savior. He's the one to rescue us from our sins. He is also the Christ, the promised one of all those Old Testament prophets that they said He would come. This is Him. And then we see that He is also the Lord, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Meaning, the Savior Christ is not merely sent from the Lord God. He is the Lord God in the flesh. This is so important for us to see here. Notice that the word Lord has already been used twice in this passage before verse 11. Look again back at verse 9. We read that the angel is of the Lord. And then again in verse 9, we see that the the glory of the Lord shone around these shepherds and this angel. So do you see what Luke is showing us here? He's saying the same Lord who has an army of angels to do His will as He pleases, the same Lord whose glory lights up the night sky in that field outside of Bethlehem, that same Lord is the one lying in a feeding trough as a helpless newborn baby. And He's the promised one to save us from our sins. The Savior who is Christ Lord. Now there's so much truth to mine here, but what I want to do is focus on one particular phrase at the end of verse 10 that helps us answer that question. Jesus, what are you here for? Who is this good news for? It's for all the people. See that? This is for all the people. Now, well, you might ask, well, who are all the people? Is it all of the shepherds? Is it all of Bethlehem? It's a little too narrow for, for this word all. Is it, is it for all of Israel? Well, certainly that's, that's part of it. The Savior, the Messiah, was promised to come through and for Israel, but there's more to it than that. Now, you might say, Kevin, hey, you're kind of uh, overplaying this word all. It seems pretty clear that all means all. Does it mean every single individual in the world? Well, you and I both know there are many people who do not experience the good news of great joy of, of our Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel has something else in mind here when he says all the people. And to help us understand this, it's always good to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And in this very same chapter, in the next story, we get a glimpse of what this means. If you look down at verse 27, if you have your, your Bibles, uh, when Jesus is presented in the temple, we're introduced to a man named Simeon. And Simeon was a godly man. We're told that the Holy Spirit was upon him and he was awaiting the consolation of Israel, meaning he was awaiting the Messiah. And God revealed to him that he would be allowed to see the Messiah before he died. And we read in Luke 2, verse 27, And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, 
Now you're letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. What does that mean? Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. So the phrase that Simeon uses in verse 31, all peoples, is the exact same phrase the angel uses in verse 10. But Simeon goes on to help us understand what that means in the next verse. He says what that means is that Jesus has come as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which means anybody who's not a Jew, to the nations. In other words, the gospel is not just for the lowly on that hillside in Bethlehem or for the lowly in this nation of Israel. The gospel is for the lowly of all nations. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you and me. I'm I'm privileged to know Christians and believers from many different ethnic backgrounds. I am a Gentile. That simply means non-Jew. I've been a recipient of this. But remember, at the time, this was very significant. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, this is one of the most difficult things the early church had to wrestle with, especially Christian Jews, is that the gospel was not just for them. Because remember, God did choose and created a nation. He created Israel. And He blessed them and He gave them prophets and He promised His presence to them. But over time... They forgot, as we tend to do, they forgot the purpose of that blessing. They thought it was just for themselves. This week on Friday, my children will tear into their Christmas presents. And I do mean tear into them. From from us, from grandparents, and they will spend the rest of the day enjoying those gifts. Hopefully, not just the day, right? But for the next months and year, because we're not buying them anything for another 12 months, right? And they'll enjoy those gifts. And that, that is good and right. But there, there will come, let me just tell you, as a father of many children, there will come a moment when another sibling, a brother or sister, comes up and says, hey, can I play with that too? <laughs> it's the dilemma every child faces. Do I, and, and us as well, do I share this blessing or do I, do I keep it for myself? Israel had a hard time understanding and remembering that the reason they were blessed was not to hoard the blessing, but so that through them they could bless all nations. Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all nations, shall be blessed. And the angel says that time is here for the gospel to go forth. Now, what what does that mean for for us? Well, it means really two things. First, we are the nations. We are Gentiles. That means we are recipients of this global purpose of the gospel. We should praise God for His grace that we get to experience here this morning on the other side of the world from where this story began. When Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection, he told them that they would be filled with his spirit and they would be his witnesses and they would take the gospel to Jerusalem, to to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Think concentric circles. We could say, 
uh, take the gospel to Waltham with all of us as missionaries. That's our Jerusalem. To, to Hyannis, Cape Cod, to, to Weymouth, where Pastor Jeremy and Dave Comau are. That's our Judea, Samaria, right? The rest of America. And to the ends of the earth. Think of our brother Richard Oyet and Salt and Light Ministries in, in Uganda. It's a global purpose for the gospel. And what a gift of God's grace it is that here we are on December 20th, 2020, in Waltham, Massachusetts, experiencing the light of salvation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel is good news of great joy for all peoples. For Americans, for Chinese, for Jew, Gentile, Ghanaian, Australian, Brazilian, Ugandan, Guatemalan, and so on. It's for the nations. So that's what it means for us. We should praise God for it. And second, it means that we too should have a heart of mission for the nations. We should have a heart of the gospel for all the peoples. We're not only recipients of this, we are also participants in the mission. The joy of the gospel is magnified in us when it's shared with others. Do you realize that Christmas is the story of the greatest missionary who ever lived? Who left the comforts of his home to rescue lost sinners? And this good news, if we've received it as recipients, we should also joyfully pursue giving it to others as participants. The greatest Christmas of my life was December 25th, 1996. That year, I got the newly released Nintendo 64. It came with a game, Super Mario, and it was a great game, but the thing about Super Mario is you, it, it was a one-person game, and I loved games that you could play with other people. I loved Wave Race. You don't know what that is? Just wave and race, jet ski, racing jet skis. I could do a triple backflip. Uh, I loved Mario Kart. Here we go. Classic. Thank you. And my favorite was GoldenEye 007. And the reason that is, is because when, you, when you're, experiencing, you're experiencing something joyful, what do you want to do? You want to share it with others. This is great. I don't want to just play it by myself. I want others to experience this as well. Well, friends, that was a silly video game. I loved that thing for two years and then I moved on. We're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners from eternal hell and draws them to the joy of life with God. Why would we not want to participate in bringing this gospel to the nations? Beginning in our neighborhood. Charles Spurgeon puts it very bluntly, but he's speaking the truth in love to us here. Listen to what he says. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread the gospel or spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else... You do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Of course, I do not mean that those who, that those who use the pen are silent. They're not. And those who help others to use the tongue or spread that which others have written are doing their part well. But the man who says, the man or woman who says, I believe in Jesus but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or track is an imposter. See, friend, you, you may not be called to vocational 
ministry, called to be a pastor. You may not be called to to go to a, a foreign nation, though I pray that we're a church that raises up pastors and missionaries. But if you've been a recipient of the mission, you are also a participant in the mission. You are called to take the gospel to the nations. And the glorious thing about the time we're living in is that the nations have come to us. Start with your neighbor. Bring the good news of great joy to the lowly that God has placed around you. And the ultimate purpose of this, we see number three, is for the glory of God. So Jesus came for the lowly. Jesus came for the nations. And lastly, Jesus came for the glory of God. We read in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. So there's a a glorious response to this announcement of Christ's birth. Apparently it, it required one angel, only one angel, to announce the birth of Christ, but a multitude of heavenly hosts a number beyond comprehension, to celebrate this good news. Maybe you've seen the phenomenon of, has anyone seen the virtual choirs since the pandemic that have popped up, right? A few of you. It's uh, these choirs that cannot sing together for obvious reasons are creating these virtual choirs. And uh, actually, I did some research on this and found that the first virtual choir was in 2009. It was put together by Eric Whitaker, who's a Grammy award-winning conductor and had about 180 people. Well, that's grown over the years, and he decided to do one since the pandemic. And it ha- are you ready for this? The, the most recent one had over 17,000 singers. So he would conduct, he would send out the video, they would record. A team of people taking months working virtually nonstop would watch every single video, edit it, put it together, and create this beautiful choir, largest choir ever recorded. And as we think about that, that is just a drop in the bucket to what is happening in Luke chapter 2. 17,000 singers is nothing compared to this multitude of angels praising God. I imagine the shepherds can't even see the night sky, can't even see around them. They're hearing a sound so loud and so beautiful, more beautiful they've ever heard before. They're seeing the brightness of God's glory brighter than they've ever seen before before. And they have a very simple song, and it has two parts. Glory to God and peace to man. Let's examine that for a moment. First, they they say glory to God. They're praising God for the work of salvation, for the arrival of the Savior, who's Christ the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting about this. These angels are not like us. They're not like the shepherds, meaning they're not sinners meaning they don't need salvation, meaning they're not recipients of God's grace. They already experience His presence in an unhindered way. So then why are they praising God for the work of salvation that they don't even receive? Well, well, here's the reason. They were created to glorify God, and they know that God is greatly glorified in the salvation of sinners. They've had a a front row seat to this plan of salvation unfolding from the beginning. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. That's what these angels have been doing. And now the advent of such a great salvation has come, and they can't contain it. They celebrate, they declare the glory of God. 
Jesus tells us later in Luke chapter 15 that there's joy before the angels of God over just one sinner who repents. But now in Luke 2, at the, at the advent of Christ, these angels know because of this moment, untold millions are going to experience God's grace and be reconciled to Him. Therefore, we're going to praise Him. We're going to give Him glory. And friends, if the angels who are not even recipients of salvation as we are, if they glorify God in this way, how much more should you and I give our lives to the glory of His name? How much more should you and I in song, in thought, in deed, in every moment of our lives say glory to God in the highest? See, this, this is what the gospel does. It restores us to our original purpose of bringing God glory. If you've been with us in the early parts of Genesis, you've, you've seen as we've walked through what is the purpose of man and woman being created. They were created in the image of God as His representatives to fill the earth with the glory and honor of His name. But sin took that upward purpose of God's glory and inverted it to an inward purpose of self-exaltation. So Christ came to do what we couldn't do. He came to glorify the Father fully in His life of obedience. He came to glorify the Father in His death in our place for our sin. And He glorified the Father in His victorious resurrection so that we who believe may be restored to our purpose of saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. And that's the second part of their song. First, glory to God, and then God gets the glory, we get the peace. Peace on earth. I love how John Piper puts this. He says, glory ever ascending from man to God, peace ever descending from God to man. This is the purpose of the incarnation. And, and notice that we've, we've already seen numerous blessings of the gospel in this passage. It's good news of great joy. It, there's salvation. It eliminates fear. But the blessing that the angels zero in on here is, is peace. Now, Pastor Connor is actually going to talk a little bit more about this on a practical level next week from Philippians chapter 4, this idea of how we can have peace. But I just want to make one observation here from verse 14. As we look at the world around us, we see a world that really wants the second part of verse 14, but completely neglects the first part. Ask anybody, ask a Christian, an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, undecided, whatever. Would, would you like peace, inner peace? You're going to get the answer yes. Would you like peace with your fellow neighbor? Wouldn't it be great if there could be peace on earth? Absolutely. We love peace on earth. But friends, you cannot have peace on earth without glory to God in the highest. That is a vain pursuit. The ultimate peace from which all other peace flows is peace with God. As Paul tells us in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified, which means declared innocent or declared righteous, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you invert that verse, you can read it this way. If you have not been justified through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no peace. There's no true, lasting, indestructible peace apart from a re restored relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of his name. There is no peace on earth without glory to God in the highest. So Jesus came to glorify God by bringing peace to the lowly of all nations. So how, how do we experience this reality this morning? Well, notice how verse 14 ends. It ends by telling us that this salvation is for those with whom God is pleased, or as the NIV puts it, those on whom His favor rests. In, in other words, this is a gift of God's grace. And we receive this gift by believing the gospel. That's the simple application for us this morning as we consider this good news of great joy of Christ who came to glorify God by bringing peace to the lowly of all nations. Will we believe the gospel? Some of you for the first time need to repent and believe the gospel unto eternal life. Friends, even those of us who have been following Jesus for years need to make ourselves low and believe this good news of great joy. As Paul says in Romans 15, 13, I love this verse. It's such a wonderful summary verse of believing the gospel. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in faith, so that you may by the power of the Holy Spirit abound in hope. So brothers and sisters, as, as fellow lowly sinners, may we believe this good news of great joy this morning. As recipients of such grace, may we become eager participants in spreading this gospel to our neighbors and to the nations for the glory of God in the highest and for peace on earth. Let's pray together.